When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Venture X card from Capital One gives you premium travel benefits. Perfect for seeing Taylor Swift The Eras Tour. Presented by Capital One. Ooh, I do love her. Earn five times miles on flights and ten times miles on hotels through Capital One Travel. Enjoy your stay in Suite 13. Whoa, 13? That's Taylor's lucky number. The Venture X card from Capital One. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. Dylan was, he was a revolutionary, man. The way that, the way that Elvis freed your body, Bob freed your mind. This is Bob Dylan, about man and God and law. Come here, ladies and gentlemen, listen to the song. Sing it to you right, but you might think it's wrong. May make you mad, but I mean no harm. It's just about the rentals on Penny's Farm. It's a hard times in the country out on Penny's Farm. You move out on Penny's Farm, plant a little crop of bagger and a little crop of corn. Come around and see you're gonna flit and plot till you get yourself a mortgage on everything you got. It's a hard times in the country out on Penny's Farm. A farm, agriculture, cultivation, and culture. Culture is the art of cultivating and elevating shared expression in the pathways of life. It is the fruit of society's labors. And in order for culture to produce these fruits, we must set boundaries. Now, there are rules for seeding and growing culture. Culture needs a farm. Now, down on Maggie's farm, man gave names to all the animals and prays for rain. And you sing while you slave. These are the cults of culture making, its rituals and routines to control otherwise uncontrolled landscapes so that we can feed ourselves. Law conquers nature to provide sustenance. But it's not all that easy down on the farm. The Bentley boys knew it in 1927, and Bob Dylan knew it in 1965. So far, we've talked about rock and roll's twists on salvation, the art of memory, and its unique mapping of America. But now, we get grounded. 
We're talking about the law. The fences that make good rock and roll neighbors, led by our man in the field, Bob Dylan. What are the rules of culture we rely upon to make the farm produce? What are the laws in which we entangle so that we can produce meaning, something life-affirming, something lasting? A man from the country, from the highlands, from the Iron Range, Bob Dylan gets his hands dirty down on the farm. He also gets mixed up with the law. A married man and a divorced man, a white man and a father, a voter, an agitator, a Christian, a Jew, a record company man, a man of wealth and privilege and many masks. Even Dylan, who taught in absolutely sweet Marie from Blonde on Blonde that to live outside the law you must be honest, even Dylan has a date with the law. But you're gonna have to serve somebody You're gonna have to serve somebody Somebody Well, it may be the devil Or it may be the Lord But you're gonna have to serve somebody Serve somebody Yes, you may call him Terry And you may call him Timmy, you may call him Bobby, and you may call him Zimmy, you may call him RJ, and you may call him Ray, but no matter what you say, Bob Dylan's still going to have to serve somebody. How does Bob Dylan, who once said, even the birds are chained to the sky, how does he understand the burdens and gifts of the law that shape the world? Well, sharpen your pencils, slip that long yellow legal pad out of your briefcase and prepare for litigation. You have a summons. I'm Stephen Daniel Arnoff. Welcome to episode four of Bob Dylan about man and God and law before the law. to see is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. In the world of interpretation of sacred text, it is said that there is no early or late in the Bible. Chronology goes out the window in the realm of a canon grappling with the big questions. 
We see this in the New Testament, interweaving teachings and teachers of the Gospels into the Old Testament. And it's why when God says to Abraham, kill me a son, and Abe says, man, you must be putting me on, we also find a roving gambler trying to start a next world war and a thousand telephones that don't ring. In the collected work of a great collector, it's all time out of mind. And there is no such thing as an anachronism. Episode 3, The Art of Memory, saw this in both Desolation Row with Einstein and the Good Samaritan and Noah in a single song, and the cover montage of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band with Marilyn Monroe, W.C. Fields, Carl Jung, and the Beatles themselves posed in a single timeless scene together. Now, in a seamless corpus beyond time, we will juxtapose and compare songs from different eras to explain a single idea, a single theme. All is fair in looking for love and the law. There are so many kinds of laws. Religious laws covering everything from diet to sex to who gets to talk to God. There's civil law, tax law, criminal law. And then there's the law of Johnny Cash, which producer and companion Rick Rubin witnessed for himself when Cash began to offer him communion. Actual communion with the wafer and the wine and the re-embodiment of the miracle for years of their friendship, even after Cash's death. Now, Johnny Cash was a man Dylan truly admired. Check out episode five of our friends at the great rock and roll archaeology for their take on this dynamic duel. And, and hey, we might add that this is our first episode fully locked and loaded on the Pantheon Podcast Network with rock and roll, archaeology, and so many other great music podcasts. Johnny Cash takes the law into his own hands. He makes his own communion. He makes his own code. The man in black decided he would be a priest even if this was not the black that any official church had granted to him. And then, by the power vested in him by the state of Johnny Cash, a priest he was. The fearlessness of a loving, hard-edged hard-ass who can offer the bird to maximum lawmen like Johnny Cash did in his famous photo from San Quentin Prison, and at the same time grant the tender mercies of his own damn communion with a friend, this is a classic typology of an American hero, the morally superior outlaw. And they don't need no stinking badges. It's said that Zimmy from Gotta Serve Somebody chose the name Dylan based on Matt Dillon from Gunsmoke. And there's always been something of the Western outlaw in Dylan and in rock and roll as a whole. Remember Andy Warhol's silkscreen of Elvis drawing a gun in a shootout? A piece of art that Dylan is said to have thrown into the back of his car and later traded for a couch after a visit to the factory? Bad Company, The Eagles, and Bon Jovi sported cowboy kitsch, and a whole universe of stars, including the late great Graham Parsons, had those goofy nudie suits. But Johnny Cash himself 
warns us not to make too much of Wild West mythology. It was a slow walk in a sad rain And nobody tried to be John Wayne I came home but Tex did not And I can't talk about the hit he got It's not just Rambos and Magas that choke themselves and, and choke others with the cowboy myth. If you were a Native American, a woman, a person of color, and on and on, the default position of cowboy culture was violence, not morality. But lurking in these good, bad, and ugly outlaws is a statement from Dylan we've already mentioned, a creed, a Nicene one at that. It surely describes Johnny Cash and probably everything that Gregory Beck has ever been in from Brownsville Girl on down. And the creed is this. To live outside the law, you must be honest. To be an outlaw, to be outside of the law, you better have rules. You better have a moral compass and a moral code. To draw outside the lines of the law, you'd better be someone we can trust, who knows his or her stuff, because all you are is your name, even if you've made that name up like outlaws from Bob Dylan to Billy the Kid. And like John Wesley Harding, you'd better never make a foolish move. On the same eponymous record centered around an outlaw who never made a foolish move, Dylan sings in I Am a Lonesome Hobo, Stay free of petty jealousies, Live by no man's code, And don't go seeking paradise in that home across the road. See, a true outlaw code is completely sui generis. It belongs to no one but the outlaw. This noble go-it-alone-itness also signals a kind of danger. Let's look at a place in Dillon land where the law breaks down, where no one shares a code. It's a farm gone to seed, overgrown, undernourished, left to its own devices. It's a world in chaos. Welcome to Scarlet Town. Population? Everyone. In Scarlet Town Where I was born there's ivy leaf and silver thorn. The streets have names that you can't pronounce. Gold is down to a quarter of an ounce. Scarlet Town, like real Marcus's imagined town of Dylan Tropes from his book, The Old Weird America. And we liked the Invisible Republic title much better, was the place Todd Haynes manifest for the silver screen in his Dylan-inspired film, I'm Not There, which we've discussed before. It's the wild, wild west without a code. It's an imagined past and future, like the people in Florida living in abandoned motels without electricity outside of Disneyland, because of COVID-19? Yes, that future. The circus is in town. Seams of civilization are torn. Cultures of sacred routine and tradition turn to cults of QAnon. The weeds grow back through the cracks and they grow scarlet, like blood, like the letter, like O'Hara, 
but deep and boundless. As it me, blue, come blow your heart in scarlet down where Scarlet Town didn't come out of nowhere. It's not one of those fake western towns thrown up facades supported by two-by-fours somewhere in the desert that only last long enough for the day's shoot of some spaghetti western. No, someone put a shoulder to the plow to make those farms, to build those buildings, to cultivate that culture from those laws before it all went to pot. We visited some of those people in the previous episode in context of the original sin of the American Epoch. It's a theme we will hear Dylan wrestle with often, that the law may be so corrupt and degrading in any form that from Hattie Carroll to Hollis Brown to Brownsville Girl to a woman down in Alabama, it must be destroyed before it destroys us. He needs no further introduction. Mr. Bob Dylan. A bullet from the back of a bush took Medgar Evers' blood. His finger finally triggered his name. His hit out in the dark. His hand set to spark. Two eyes took the aim. Pawn Town sounds a lot like Scarlet Town before the fall, and everyone, black and white, is working on Maggie's farm. It's a system hung on that cross that Dylan said agricultural, mercantile America was crucified upon from the start. Slavery, forced labor, systemic power thriving from the poverty pitting white against black. There's no corporate America without it, and maybe no constitution either. There's no Jim Crow or George Floyd without it. But you also don't get the Voting Rights Act or MLK, or Angela Davis either. Law, American civil and economic law, brings out the best and the worst, but first and much more, it brings out the worst, and its negative formative impact on all national systems can be suffocating. Only a pawn in their game anticipates MAGA, the poor white man, manipulated to hate people of color so that he himself can be oppressed by the fatuous, vile, waxen lawmaker, which is 2020 America's stock and trade. So who are the lawmakers that rule Pawn Town, whose farm churns systemic oppression based on controlled scarcity and the cudgel of race? Good morning, Miss Harris. What kind of a mood's he in today? Well, he liked my new file setup. Good. But he criticized my desk. Uh-oh. Well, we'd better be heads up today. 
A little of Mr. Alton seems to have rubbed off on everyone. His personality can be felt in many ways, even in the attitude of his secretary. The men, it appears, have learned that the affairs of the day depend to a large degree on Mr. Alton's emotional condition of the moment, and that it pays to get a reading before the conference begins. Morning, gentlemen. How's the coffee? I was just thinking how good it was. Excellent. You walk into the room With your pencil in your hand You see somebody naked You say, who is that man? You try so hard But you don't understand Just what you're gonna say when you get Madman Vitalis Vitality, this overlord leaving it to Beaver in a gray pinstripe suit, this McQAnon leaning McQuacking McConnell, this smoke signaling, dog whistling, smoky boardroom overboard and overboard overlord pushing left and right to extremes from the middle of the road to keep up only with himself, only with the Joneses, this Mr. Jones that older but younger Bob Dylan called out in only a pawn in their game. He is the maker of the law. He is the guardian of the law. We've met the enemy, Dylan says, and they are ours. We've met the enemy, Dylan says, and they look like someone we know. Seeing one's adversary is seemingly the most civil of society's movers and shakers, damned by his own ignorance and fear and confusion as he governs everyone else with utmost cruelty really does make one feel alone. It really could drive one to blame and division. Facing the shiny white teeth of the law and his pointing finger songs and his most cutting tour, often booed and cursed on stage like an early iteration of the Sex Pistols or the Cramps on tour with that band called The Band, sans Levon Helm in 65 and 66, from which the Maelstrom version of Ballad of a Thin Man We've Heard was taken, all of this confrontation did something to Dylan, pulled him inward. While the struggle with the law as a real cultural, social, political, communal animus would never dissipate from his work completely, and it has at times come roaring back like in Murder Most Foul from Rough and Rowdy Ways, turning his gaze to the intimate grammar of his own personal code as a much humbled outlaw, rather than confronting the law of the world drive so much of Dylan's work going forward after seeing 
and calling out Mr. Jones for who and what he is. All along the watchtower, after Mr. Jones seems to always get the upper hand, maybe life is but a joke. That's how it looks to Joker Man. the wild card, the lonesome hobo, he's two-faced, and he doesn't like what he sees inside of himself. He only makes foolish moves despite what John Wesley Harding had worn. He also knows that he, he knows that he comes from what he comes to, from what he knows of the law. The book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the law of the jungle and the sea are your only teachers, Joker Man says to himself. Leviticus, the book of the Hebrew Bible most aligned with the priestly cult of ancient Israel, the logbook and manual for the operation of the temple and all of its sacrifices and rituals. The book of Deuteronomy, which means the repeating, a kind of reprise of all of the preceding four books of the Hebrew Bible in condensed form. The law of the jungle, which we hear as a world without law, a world of pure nature, no farms, no farmers, just wild and chock full of danger where no joker man should ever really be. And of course, the sea. Ask any poet or Herman Melville about the wisdom that makes humanity seem like less than a grain of sand when learning the ways of the sea. Dylan addresses himself, joker man, in the third person as if he himself is a stranger, a visitor to his own life. What a joke! He learned the ancient laws and wound up here, laughing at himself. Or as Joni Mitchell once sang, laughing and crying, you know it's the same release. And this is the painful dichotomy which brings us to a crossroads for Dylan and the law. He's learned society's rules and called them out as a young man. He's tried to run wild and free as well. Child of the 50s, trying out many masters, his voice of frustration and irony takes us back to a voice that predates Dylan's by a generation, but carries the very same bundle of conflicts, a self that feels chosen for something unique and profound, with respect for tradition and the law, whose search reveals that life is but a joke. He is everywhere and nowhere all at once. Just like Tom Thumb's blues. 
just like Franz Kafka's blues. Before the law, there stands a god. A man comes from the country begging admittance to the law. But the god cannot admit him. Can he hope to enter at a later time? That is possible, says the god. The man tries to peer through the entrance. He had been taught that the law should be accessible to every man. Do not attempt to enter without my permission, says the god. I am very powerful, yet I am the least of all the gods. From hall to hall, door after door, each god is more powerful than the last. By the god's permission, the man sits down by the side of the door, and there he waits. For years, he waits. Everything he has, he gives away in the hope of bribing the god, who never fails to say to him, I take what you give me, only so that you will not feel that you have left something undone. Keeping his watch during the long years, the man has learned to know even the fleas in the god's fur collar. And growing childish in old age, he begs the very fleas to persuade the god to change his mind and allow him to enter. His sight is dimmed, but in the darkness he perceives a radiance streaming immortally from the door of the law. And now, before he dies, all his experience condenses into one question, a question he has never asked. He beckons to the god, says the god, you are insatiable, what is it now? Says the man, every man strives to attain the law. How is it then that in all these years, no one else has ever come here seeking admittance? His hearing has failed, so the god yells into his ear, no one else but you could ever have obtained admittance. No one else could enter this door. This door was intended only for you. And now, I am going to close it. Franz Kafka's Before the Law is read here by Orson Welles from his 1962 adaptation of The Trial, the full narrative within which Before the Law appears. At the age of 25, exactly the age of Dylan, in his most fertile period of creativity and icon-busting, Welles saw right through his own Mr. Jones. That was Mr. Hurst, come Citizen Kane. The great bearer of the law is nothing more than a scared child who's lost his rosebud. The man from the country, in Kafka's tale, the German term Einmann von Land, may be a play on the Hebrew term Am Haaretz, which means not just one from the country, but also one without knowledge, an ignorant person, a kind of redneck. This man... This man is reduced to becoming a sniveling child before the law, like Cain, remembering his rosebud, or Mr. Jones at a total loss as he walks into the room where there ought to be a law against him coming around. If only Kafka's man from the country had bucked up and followed his instincts, a, a little law of the jungle perhaps, he could have broken through to his nirvana. 
but he had no instincts, not an ounce of jungle or sea in him. So he waited in line like a good citizen, not a citizen Kane who owns the line and the guard and the gate and the law, but waiting for the law to do the right thing and take care of him like, like Rosebud would. The guard has no interest in this funny business as the man entropies and dies knowing nothing, seeing nothing, being nothing. He can't take care of himself before the law, and no one takes care of him, so he just disappears. Only a pawn in their game. I told you times they were changing and they did. I said the answer's going in the wind and it was. And I'm telling you now, Jesus is coming back and he is. And there is no other way of salvation. If you want to rock and roll, you can go down and rock and roll. You can go see Kiss, and you rock and roll all your way down the pit. No matter how much money you got, there's only two kinds of people. There's saved people and there's lost people. There is only one gospel. The Bible says anybody who preaches anything other than that one gospel, let him be accursed. Sometime down the line, you remember you heard it here, that Jesus is Lord. Bob, why now? That's what Leonard Cohen was said to have asked Jennifer Warnes in disbelief when he heard that the Jewish board Dylan had entered and submerged himself into evangelical Christianity. It's one of the great conundrums of rock and roll. How Dylan, Bob Dylan, the agitating, law-busting, iconoclastic, fire-breathing prophet became the agitating, law-busting, iconoclastic, fire-breathing prophet. Oh, maybe it's not such a mystery that a musician steeped in the music and myth of the church, longing to witness an America died on a cross, and a man from the country himself would be drawn to try on the law in all of its power and glory. I Believe in You is just one of the scores of gorgeous songs Dylan released during his so-called born-again Christian phase. We'd be hard-pressed to find a precise beginning and end for the influence of Christian theology, belief, or longing on Dylan's work. It's in there because it's in American music so integrally everywhere. 
But there is a period, three, maybe four albums, depending on how you count, where Dylan's Christian passion is particularly ferocious. It's also tender, it's, it's arrogant, and it's humble in layers and waves, and the law is everywhere. And there's only one. As Dylan sings, you've either got faith or you've got unbelief. There ain't no neutral ground. Drawn to Christ in the mid-70s, a friend of Jimmy Carter, the president, the most powerful man in the world, a true believer also, who shared with Playboy magazine what he thought about when he stood naked. Because even the president of the United States must stand naked and lusted in his heart and got screwed because of it. Dylan, a Yankee in rock and roll sheep's clothing in the court of public opinion, Dylan brings together power, law, the struggles of the internal and external seeker's life, and ironic resignation, the resignation of a contemporary Kafka into one of the songs in his canon that seems to cover almost everything, everything that the law could want to cover, while completely upending it as well. Senor, Senor, can you tell me where we're heading? Lincoln County Road or Armageddon? Seem like I've been down this way before. Is there any truth in that, senor? Senor, senor, do you know where she's hiding? How long are we gonna be riding? How long must I keep my eyes glued to the door? Will there be? Kafka's man from the country gets both a kick in the ass and a pat on the back in Señor. Señor, the Spanish term for Jesus, the Savior, who Dylan is addressing directly, but also the rebel Jesus, wise and iconoclastic, the Jesus who takes no quarter and no gold coin when it comes to corruption in the law. Dylan asks him, from Lincoln County Road, where that old outlaw Billy the Kid made his beans, to Armageddon. Is that all there is, senor? This song is layered with illusions, awash in color, and it unfolds within a melody for the ages, God-honest rock of ages, and, and then the final verse blows up the law. First comes total alienation. Dylan is a rolling stone, an outlaw. He then settles down, cultivates a farm, makes a world, but all the wires connecting him with that world are static and stasis. In some ways, living with the law comes down to a dialectical choice. Resignation or alienation, should I stay or should I go? But then, on the third hand, is revolution. Even though he knows the option to blow it all up is his for the taking, he asks Senor in the final verse for permission to go all the way. He wants not just a fellow traveler, but an authority to bless his resolution of revolution. And this question to Senor, or rather, this request, is unanswered. Hey, what would Senor do? What would Bob Dylan do? What would Jesus do? The question sounds like the beginning of an answer. 
But it's not all there. It starts with overturning those tables, cutting those cables, starting over, somehow lawless perhaps, in a revolution, but it's not televised and Senor doesn't answer. Well, give me a minute, let me get it together. Just gotta pick myself up off the floor. I'm ready when you are, senor. but things have changed. Those cables from Senor actually can't be cut. Anyways, cut the cables and you cut the music. You've cut yourself off. But still, the mind drifts. Is there another way to live outside the law and still be honest? I was thinking of a series of dreams When nothing comes up to the top Everything stays down but it's wounded And comes to a permanent stop Wasn't thinking of anything specific Like in a dream where someone wakes up and screams Nothing to very scientific Just thinking of a series of dreams And hearing Dylan challenge authority and also embrace it drives him to despair, it drives him away, it drives him crazy, but it also pulls him back in. He loves the farm, he hates the farm, and there is the resignation that standing in line before the law Waiting for your number to come up, that's life, so you may as well play a hundred dates a year and make a ton of art while you can. Beyond Love and Life, 
connection and law, and the resignation that God is in his heaven, and we all want what's his, but power and greed and corruptible seed seem to be all that there is, there's another outlet that comes up shining in Dylan's world. Last time, we said that music, just music, makes it worth it for Dylan to go down into the parlor, resign himself to life, and relive his dreams. like to extend that idea a little further. Beyond the law, beyond love, even beyond music, there are those dreams. There are the dreams themselves which provide both the escape and the purpose of life. One can function in the world, play the game, even dabble in fully embodying oneself in it. But there is also a place, a place of dreams and disembodiment where the soul lives unencumbered. Schemes and connections, inspections and directions, a disembodied Dylan, a Dylan adrift, but seemingly content. and that pushing open the gate, and getting behind the law, and finding out what came before the law? There's a place, it seems, very much like a series of dreams. Next time on Bob Dylan about man and God and law, we'll be talking the language of love. Romance in Durango, just like a woman loves sick, all of that and more. You, you will love it. Check out all of our episodes at PantheonPodcasts.com. And friends, if you want more of what you've heard here, stop by ManGodLaw.com for show notes, song lists, writing, and more. When I was young, times were hard. I'm Stephen Daniel Arnoff. Thanks so much for coming, and see you soon. Venture X from Capital One is the travel card for people always asking, Where next? You earn 10x miles on hotels and rental cars and 5x miles on flights booked through Capital One Travel and 2x miles on everything else you buy with Venture X. Plus, receive premium travel benefits like access to over 1,300 airport lounges. The Venture X card from Capital One. 
What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.